Our text today is John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must raise them from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said in Aramaic, Rabbanah, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your life-giving word and for the new life that we all have in Christ. So Lord, today as we study this, we ask you that you impress it upon our minds and our hearts and our mouths and that we carry it everywhere that we go. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Good morning. He is risen. It is truly such a blessing to be with you all here always such a blessing to be with you all here, and it's an extra blessing to be with you here on Easter morning. And it has been an emotional week, truly, as it should be. Holy Week, this week where we have been following Christ's passion and reflecting on it, should elicit an emotional response in all of us. And it it was for me, especially this week, I know that, that sharing Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday with many of you in our home was an incredibly powerful and moving experience for myself and for my family. You know, we talk about it here all the time, which is probably good because it's a church, but we talk about faith and hope, the the concepts of faith and hope here all the time, that, that our faith in Christ alone is what brings us to salvation, and it is that salvation that gives us hope. It's not our works. It isn't how good of a boy or good of a girl that you've been, if you've done enough good deeds, if you have enough patches on your super pious Christian 
sash of piety, patches of piety, I call them. You can wear them around and everybody can know how many good deeds you have done this week. It is, instead, it is saving faith. It is saving faith that brings us to God. And and what's amazing about saving faith is that saving faith is also incredibly life-changing because it's God working in our hearts and sanctifying us. But it's bigger than that, too, because faith is this incredibly important thing. Otherwise, we wouldn't be saved by faith alone. It is so important, it is so important that every single person in the world has faith in something because you are wired to have faith in something. So if you end up not having faith in Jesus, you will have faith in things like yourself or your job or school or the government or the CDC or doctors or lawyers or your friends or the list can go on and on and on because everybody has faith in something. The reason is God wired us to be faithful creatures. Your dog does not have faith in anything other than hoping if it wags its tail enough, you will feed him or her. There's only two genders with dogs. It's the same with people him or her, more food. But, <laughs> but we, are, we are programmed differently than animals to have faith in things. So I think it goes without saying then that what you have faith in matters because what you worship determines your worldview and your worldview determines whether or not you have hope. And I mean real hope. You see, if you have faith in the wrong things, it always ends in disaster. And you don't really have to look too far outside those doors to be able to see what disaster looks like. So if we know that what we have faith in matters, the prudent person would ask, what should we have faith in? And this was a question that plagued me, that plagued me for a lot of my life. Because those of you who know me know this part of my story, but my faith journey has been pretty circuitous. And that's probably a generous word at best. It found its way at the, the beginning from like attendance at the Episcopal Church, but not really believing, to the Church of Satan, to an atheist, to some weird blend of conservative and orthodox Judaism. And then thank God, because I was getting tired, the Lord brought me home into saving faith, into saving faith in Christ. But he took me on an incredibly messy journey so that I could ultimately understand my dependence on Jesus Christ so that I could appreciate his saving grace. You see, other than the big lesson that I learned that I can't save myself by trying to live the law out, and that was when I was Jewish, I also tend to take, by the nature of my personality, a pretty rational approach to life. I am a skeptic by nature. I do not just believe things because somebody has told me that I should believe them, and neither should you. God gave you a brain that lives three feet above your rear end, and he would expect you to use it, so you should please use it. If anybody ever tells you religiously, you can't ask questions, that's a cult, and you should leave. So I would ask questions, and I would inquire about facts. What I was looking for was proof. How is what you say, how do you claim that this is true? How do you know? Just because your parents told you? Just because the guy up at front told you? How do you actually know? And it was because from a young age, I knew that truth mattered. And I didn't want to just believe in something because I was told that you should just go and believe in something. I wanted to know that it was true. Because we are all wired also to know that things are either true or they're not. I knew intrinsically that pluralism or universalism, you know what that is, right? Like everybody just believes in what they do and it's all super cool. You've seen bumper stickers that say that. It doesn't work. 
It doesn't work because pluralism and universalism turn into intellectual cop-outs. And it doesn't actually make sense. It all actually can't all be true. It doesn't work like that. For something to be true, something else has to also be false. And it was this journey that God took me on. It was a journey of seeking truth. And of course, that journey ultimately ended for me, what really began, at the cross of Christ. We spoke, we spoke Palm Sunday and then through Holy Week about how so much of this week is about reflecting on the cross of Christ, that we should have been spending our time thinking about the cross of Jesus this week because he died the death that we deserved. He suffered for us. He paid the ultimate price. See, I had this incredible experience where I tried to live a legalistic life as a religious Jew. Just do a few more commandments, follow a few more rules, you check off a few more boxes. The pilots here will love this. It was all like checklist driven. You just do this and then you do the next thing and just keep going down. And it was out of this place of legalism because it's like being on a hamster wheel. Because you can never quite do it good enough. Oh man, I messed up today. I screwed up again. That's when God brought me to the foot of the cross. And, and it, it was at the foot of the cross, it was at this, this place in my conversion journey in, in God calling me home that I actually understood that everything really depends on today. It depends on Easter. You see, family, so much of life is actually binary, right? Things either are or they are not. They're either true or they are not true. I had this apologetics professor in my first year in seminary, and she told us there's no such thing as a half-truth, which is true, because if something is a half-truth, it contains falsehood, which makes it, by default, false. So what it means is that truth matters, and it means that the truth of Easter matters, because if Easter isn't true, then we are just a bunch of fools. It's just reality. And all of the Christian faith hinges, it hinges on the truthfulness of one event, and that is Easter. That's Christ's resurrection. You see, Christ's death on the cross is only life-changing if he resurrects three days later. Otherwise, he was just another man who said some really encouraging, really nice things, and we should probably listen to them, and then he died. And that's really unfortunate. Everything depends on Christ's resurrection. John 20, 1 through 10 again. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Simon Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went in the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. So this is the scene. Christ has died on the cross, and there is no doubt, there is absolutely no doubt that he is dead. Not only did they pierce his side, 
but, but they, they beat him within inches of his life on the journey before they hung him on the cross. There is no doubt that Jesus is dead. And so he's laid in a tomb. And a sealed tomb is custom. And in front of this tomb, they put a large stone to protect the tomb and close it off from predators and body snatchers and all kinds of things. And so this is where Mary, this is where Mary, a follower of Christ, shows up on Sunday morning. And she is surprised, to say the least. And she is surprised because the giant stone covering the entrance isn't there. Now I want to pause here for a second because we have to think about the emotional state Think about the emotional state of this. Because you remember, we already all know the ending to the story. So we're not surprised when Jesus shows up. But they're there, and this is happening live. So, so we, we can't just like read this, kind of knowing what's going to happen next. We, we really need to feel this. We have to feel the panic and the terror. You have to think about the whirlwind of the week that this has been for Christ's followers, right? They, they roll in. It's a triumphant entry. Jesus is public, it's, it's Hosanna, Hosanna, and there's palms, and it's, it's a celebration, and they're there for the Passover, and then the, the, there's the Passover Seder, and Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, which is pretty unheard of, and then there's betrayal, and then there's death on the cross, and you see, Jesus told them these things were going to happen, but I know this has never happened to any of you, but this has happened to me. Sometimes we don't just get it in the moment, like people are really clear and they tell us things, a flight instructor at one of the airports has a, has a patch on his bag, and it says, if you had just done it the way I told you to, it would have worked out well, right? He, he, he told them what was going to happen. People tell us all the time, just go do this. This is what's going to happen. And we're like, ha, ah, no, that's not really it. Because it's so far outside of our experience, it's, it's hard for us to get the, our brains wrapped around this. So different for Christ's followers. Jesus is telling them what's going to happen, but... but they're out, they, they've been tasked to go spread the gospel. They're on a roll. I mean, they've experienced persecution, but people are being healed. Diseases are being healed. Uh, people are being brought back to life. Like, they are on a roll. Do you think anybody expects it to, to, to just hard end on this, this Friday after, after Passover? No. I know he's dead. He's dead. Nailed to a cross. His side has been pierced. He's been placed in a tomb. He is dead. Think about the panic that people are experiencing. This is a huge shift. It's a huge pivot. And this is how Mary arrives. Mark, in his gospel, for you to read his account, tells us that, that, that Mary Magdalene and Jesus' mother come, come to anoint his body with spices, which would have been part of the Jewish burial tradition. So that's what she shows up to. She, she's got a game plan. She already knows what she's going to do. She's already mourning. They're all mourning. I know the stone's gone. This is not what she was expecting when she showed up. And so she did what any reasonable person did. She ran off and got her friends. She finds Simon Peter, and you can almost hear the panic, like the panic in her voice. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Where's Jesus? Especially burial in, in, in the Jewish society, in Jewish customs, the burial of the dead is, it is still treated now within Orthodox Jewish communities. It is incredibly important, and it is supposed to be done as close to death as possible. This is a big deal. Jesus, he is gone. 
They have taken the Lord. We do not know where he is. What do we do? So then the next reasonable thing happens. Peter and the other disciple, they're hightailing it for the tomb, which is really the only, only acceptable reason to be running ever for any of you who run that are bears chasing you. Vern and I had to talk about this the other night. I don't understand. So they run. They're panicked. Jesus is gone. They peek in. And the linens that, that Christ was wrapped in, you see, Jews, even today, if you were buried in Israel right now, you wouldn't be buried in a coffin. You'd be wrapped in a shroud. In, in, a, in a white, unadorned sheet. Orthodox Jews today are still buried in white, unadorned clothes. And so, so the linens that, that his body, naked body, would have been wrapped in, was there. But not just that. The cloth that had been used to cover his face was folded nicely. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Do you hate when, those, when evolution folds things accidentally nicely by itself? Just kidding. So they go in. And they saw and they believed what Mary said, says, right? It says they went in and they believed. But what they didn't understand was Scripture yet. So they believe her account, Jesus isn't here. But they haven't put all the pieces together, all these pieces, all the connecting dots, even though they were told them beforehand. That they, they didn't really understand that Christ must rise from the dead. And so they leave. Verses 11 through 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And, and, and the word, the Greek word that talks about weeping, we're talking like uncontrolled crying. Like weeping, weeping crying. She saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. He, she's devastated, she's crying. We do a whole sermon series on the interesting things that happen when angels show up. Where's her Lord? Where is Christ? This cannot be. Death on a cross and now this? Like at least we could bury his body. I mean, it must have been tragic. You know what it must have felt like? It must have felt hopeless. It must have felt hopeless. Despair. How can this be? And she looks back and there's angels. And they ask her, woman, this term, woman, Daughter of Eve, daughter of God, why are you weeping? She tells them, someone has taken Jesus, and she doesn't know where he is. And see, this is where it gets really beautiful. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. I mean, it kind of makes sense, though, if you really think about it, if you think about it from the emotional state that she would have been in. She's in distress, she's weeping, Christ is dead. And it died in a pretty horrific way. And the angels ask her why she's weeping, and then she turns around, and there's Jesus. But she doesn't recognize him. And this could seem odd. You could say, well, how, is, how could this be? She spent all this time with Jesus. Did she not know what Jesus looked like? How could she not recognize Jesus? Now, there's a few, there's a few possibilities. One is one of spiritual hindrance. We see in Luke's Gospel. Uh, like the, the, the encounter on the road of uh, on Emmaus. But then there's this other, it could just be simple skepticism and grief. told you earlier, I'm a skeptic by nature. And, and I would imagine there were people in the first century that were also skeptics by nature, despite miracles, despite experiences. We, we see this over and over and over in Scripture. 
when Jesus is going out and, and, and conducting miracles. We see this same, and we see it with the Jews before with hardened hearts, even though they witnessed God parting the Red Sea, the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Like, we have hard hearts, even when it's right in our face. It's easy to be skeptical. It's, it's, it's easy, to be, easy to be skeptical, even though Jesus said, like, he's going to come back. I will return. But we all know. People don't come back from the dead. But they do. Especially not after witnessing death on a cross. So whatever the reason is, and we don't know, Mary didn't recognize him. So then Jesus says to her, woman, again, daughter of Eve, daughter of God, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So she assumes he's the gardener. And she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus asks her again, like, why are you weeping? So she must be really weeping at this point. There's angels. They've asked her why she's weeping. She's trying to process all of this. It's incredibly overwhelming. And then she assumes that the landscaping guy, that the gardener might have done something with the body. She assumes that maybe as he's caring for these tombs, maybe he has moved Jesus somewhere. So she just wants to know where it is. And then can we please get Jesus' body back so we can go take care of it? Just tell me where it is. Got the rest. I want you to pay attention here. What did the angels refer to her as when they called her? They said, woman. What did Jesus refer to her as when he called her and she didn't recognize him? Woman. Then verse 16. And Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said, Rabani, teacher. This is overwhelming for me. He calls her by name. A little earlier in John, John says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And she saw, responds with, Rabbi, Rabbi, teacher. He calls her name and she responds, can you even imagine? If you thought she was weeping before, what do you think the weeping turned into when she realized it was Jesus? And then Jesus says to her in 17 and 18, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. So what does Jesus tell her? He says, don't cling to me, don't touch me. Can you imagine like, what you would want to do if you had just seen Jesus? He's a back, he's alive, it's true, he's true, like, you have had every feeling possible in this really short period of time, right? This, this sine wave. This is what we're trying to, we're talking about with feeling during Holy Week. It's this up and down, back and forth. We're on a high, we're on a low, we're on this really crazy low. Now we're on the pinnacle of highs. He's alive. Just want to hug him. I'm sure Mary just wanted to go up and touch him. Is it really you? I just, it's like when the dog came back. I'm not comparing any of this to the dog. But when Grace came home after being missing for seven months, we had no idea where she went, we don't let her in the front yard anymore. Like, we cling to the dog. Don't go outside. Even with the invisible fence thing. Like, here's Mary. Jesus is back. You're not leaving my sight. I mean, really. You, you wouldn't want Jesus to be anywhere out of your sight. You cling to him. And Jesus says, no, 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 not now. I haven't yet ascended to my father, 
your father, to my God, to your God. You need to go, you need to go tell the disciples. You need to go and tell them that I will ascend. This isn't in my notes, but I'm going to put it here anyways, especially within critical parts, parts of the world that are critical of religious cultures and gender roles. There's something really beautiful here that you may not catch. Because sometimes, sometimes Bible-believing churches can be accused of being misogynists, which isn't true. We all know none of us men could do this without our lovely wives at all. Witness testimony in the first century is a big deal. It's where we actually get our, our part of our, it comes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, the law from Deuteronomy, you know what that word is. But the Deuteronomic law, it's a hard word to say in front of all y'all requires two or more witnesses for things. That's where we get, that's why witnesses are so important within our own civil system, or they used to be at one point. Hopefully they will be again. Um, in general, in the first century, women were not witnesses to things. Women's testimony was not considered as strong as men's testimony. And the fact that it is Jesus that is sending a woman back to tell the disciples talks about Jesus' view of women in the early church, despite roles, pushing against a Jewish system that was not promoting of, of femininity. There, there's subtle pieces in the text that if you don't understand the culture, you can miss. And it's here that Jesus sends Mary to tell his disciples. He says, go tell my disciples, tell my brothers, and tell them that I will ascend. And then she goes and does what she's told. You see, family, everything depends on Easter. Depends on the risen Christ, the fulfillment of his prophecy, of putting death to death. Because if Easter isn't true, Christianity isn't true. But here's the incredible thing. Easter is true. Christ did rise from the dead. And, and, and going back to witnesses, this is what is, is so incredible about our faith tradition, is it is all backed up by witness testimony. No other religion can make that claim. None. Judaism and Christianity are the only two because it's God's covenant, that can make the claim of witness testimony. You see, witnesses saw and experienced this. It didn't take place in a vacuum. It wasn't like some guy reading, you know, I always use the hat, reading the magic plates and the hat. Ha! I found new Bible verses. No, you didn't. But what it means is, because Easter is true, because Jesus rose from the dead, it means that Scripture is true, that God is who He says He is, which means we are a redeemed people, and it means God keeps His promises and His covenants with us, and it means that no matter how desperate we are, no matter how scared we are, no matter how much we weep, no matter how, how terrifying it may seem, like showing up to the empty tomb, it is never hopeless, ever. Do you hear how much hope is happening in the back? It is never hopeless, ever. That's why God tells us to look at the world through the eyes of a child. Like, that's full of hope right there. It's fantastic. You see, the truthfulness of Easter points us to the truthfulness of the gospel, which gives us hope. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost I don't know how Paul wrote those words for me, of who I am, the foremost of all sinners. Christ came into the world to save. But it wasn't just the risen Christ in bodily form in that moment that was to give Mary hope. 
And that's what he's telling Mary and he's telling us. It's actually the hope comes from the fact that Jesus is to ascend to the Father, his Father, our Father, to sit at his right hand. So cling to him then. Because in that place, all of us can cling to him forever. He's saying to Mary, I will be accessible to you forever. Forever. Not just right now where you can touch my arm and see me. I am accessible to you forever. Family, it's so beautiful. Jesus called Mary by name. He calls us by name. Names are so important. That's why we get frustrated when people like butcher our names. Mr. Thahigi there? No. Tahigi? No. Ah, it must be Tig. Sure. <laughs> Names are important. Somebody has a baby? That's the first question we ask them. Is it a boy or a girl? You know why. What's the second question we ask them? What's its name? What's her name? What's his name? We never ask what's its name, ever. Scratch that from the record. But here it gets more beautiful, family. Jesus called all of us by name before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love... In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, as through, uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Paul continues, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to uh, the praise of his glory. It's all about hope. It's all about hope. This is the God that called Mary by name, this is the God that told Mary, don't cling to me here, cling to me there forever. This is the God who calls us by name. And he says, cling to me forever. He says, put all of your hope in him, all of your hope, not like 80% of your hope. The Bible doesn't use words like partial very often. <laughs> Please put partial faith in Jesus. We're looking for like 70%. That's a passing grade. No, it says all. Put all of your hope, all of your trust. What do we talk about here? All of Christ for all of life, not like some of Christ for part of life. It is all of Christ for all of life. This is why Easter is so important, because Christ died for you, to save you, to reunite you to him. And that ultimately gives us hope. And my friends and my family, this world needs hope. It needs so much hope. It needs real hope and real faith. You know, it's easy to get sucked into this vortex of like, how bad is the world? How bad is my life? How terrible are things? Everybody here has done it. Especially easy if you have any, get rid of your social media. I haven't said it in a couple of weeks. It's terrible. It does brain damage. But if you're scrolling on stuff, right? How much of it that's actually uplifting? Maybe like one or two cute cat videos. But the rest of it's just, it's just, just terrible. 
And what happens is, what happens is it lends us to put our faith in the wrong things. It lends us to put our faith in things that we think can save us. I made a career out of trying to put my faith in things that I thought could save me that couldn't. Jobs, bank accounts, hobbies, lusts, friends, the, the, the list goes on and on and on. And at the end of the day, all those things ultimately let us down if we put our full faith in them. The beautiful thing is if you have your faith in Jesus Christ, then all those other things get their right place. You actually get to enjoy your job more and your hobbies more, and you actually care a lot less about your bank account, and you don't worry about friends, you end up with just a bunch of family, so that's pretty cool. I mean, really, you get brothers and sisters out of that, so that's way cooler than friends. You guys are all my brothers and sisters. It's amazing. Because all these other things, they just die like everything else. If we do no maintenance to this building, we come back in a thousand years, it's not going to be here, right? It's going to be rubble. It's going to fall down. But not Jesus. But not Jesus. You see, Jesus' death put death to death. His resurrection changed the world, literally. And it continues to change the world each and every single day. As we close up, I, I'd like to encourage you. You might be here and you might be in deep faith. I'd say bravo. I pray that you continually grow in your faith and your love and admiration of the Lord, working to live out all of Christ for all of life. And you may be here and you're not in deep faith. I'd say to you, welcome. We're really glad you're here. We ask people just to come as they are and don't leave as you were. Maybe you've got a leg in the faith pool. Maybe it's not even a leg. Maybe it's like a pinky toe, like the nail of the pinky toe. And you're like, I'm just going to dip a little bit of that here. Some of those Christian people see a little bit weird. We are, and it's fun. Um, <laughs> but maybe you feel hopeless. Maybe you feel hopeless and weeping like Mary. I understand this place. I, that's a part of my journey. I've been in places where there was tons of what I felt was hopelessness. And I tried to solve my problem, living a life of vanity, and it just led me to frustration. Trying to solve the problem yourself, and this is hard for us type A folks, doesn't ever actually end up well in the long term. My solution for a lot of times is just kind of like grin and bear it and push a little bit harder and then bury the other pieces down and be just fine. But it doesn't. None of it actually saves in the long run. But it was when I came to the foot of the cross and I heard Christ calling me by name, that literally everything in my life changed. And a lot of you have been here for both parts of my life. So you've seen some of this change. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I don't have struggles or I don't have moments or I don't have way, a little flash of hopelessness at times. But there's a difference between having a flash from a moment to being dead in it forever. The hope is that none of us have to ever be in that place permanently. And that's why we're a hopeful people. One of the things that had frustrated me about the limited experience I had in working in other churches and then being in the, the church world is how many churches I went to where there was no hope. It's like, isn't this the whole thing? Like, Jesus is the hope. We're hopeful people here because we know the truth of Easter. We know that Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the greatest. You may feel the same way. We know that Christ died to redeem us. We know that it is through His death that we gain new life and ultimately lives us, leads us to transform lives, lives of joy. And I don't mean that like some like tongue-in-cheek, like pastory, like now everyone just go out and live your most joyful life. Here's your three takeaways from the sermon. What I mean is that you can have joy in some of the most difficult circumstances, but it's only, it's only if you have faith in Jesus Christ. 
Because that hope, that hope that you're looking for, isn't coming from you. It's coming from God. We can do all things, not some things, not a few things. We can do all things through God who strengthens us. So if you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you to pray. Ask God to provide clarity and insight into Christ is. And ask questions. You should ask lots of questions. You should ask hard questions too. It's important to ask hard questions. And you can ask them to me, and I might not even have all the answers, but I'll sure try. You can pray to God. You can ask Him for true and unending joy. You can ask Him to feel the rebirth and renewal that comes from faith in Christ. Because everybody has faith in something. And what you have faith in matters. Because ultimately it determines the trajectory of your life and the purpose of your heart. What we believe directs all of our steps. It does. Our worldview matters. What we believe is where we find our hope or a lack of hope. And that's why we as a church encourage all of you to live lives of all of Christ for all of life. Because we know that it is the promised path of hope and joy. The path of forgiveness and rebirth. Our, our lives depend on it. Literally. Eternally. I wasn't always on this right path. And I definitely wasn't always on the right direction. And I tried just about everything I could, including the law, to save me. And you know what? None of it actually worked. And that is because there is only one path. There's only one path to faith. And that is the path that leads to the narrow gate. And that is the path that leads to total faith in Jesus Christ, who is the risen Son of God. He is risen. Let's pray. O God, who for our redemption you gave your only begotten Son to death on the cross, and by his glorious resurrection you have delivered us from the power of our enemy. Lord, we ask you uh, to, uh, to, to allow us to die daily to sin, that we may evermore live with Jesus and you in the joy of his resurrection. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.